It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone. I hope you're having a fun-filled Saturday. Weather is gorgeous outside. I can't even describe how beautiful that is. So listen, let's get right in here. Before I tell you about our guest, I want to share with you a really fun uh, chart here. I love listicles. I think they're so much fun. So take a listen here. We just finished Halloween. That's, some people are still celebrating Halloween. You know, I, I have friends that just do that all year round. Like some people decorate, keep their houses decorated for Christmas year round. Yeah, it's okay. You can do that. But just fresh off the Halloween season, I found this really fun, interesting listicle here from um, Casino Top. 3.com, the website, Casino Top, T-O-P, the number 3.com. And for people who are horror film, uh, you love the genre of horror movies, a big film enthusiast for that genre, pay attention. This is a good one for you. According to CasinoTop3.com, they have listed the 10 most dangerous movie villains. Yeah, let's take a listen and Dig into that list here. Number 10 is Razagul. Remember him? Razagul from Batman. I don't know which Batman, but I just remember the character. How could you? Ugh. Anyway, number 10 is Razagul. Number nine is Lord Voldemort from Harry Potter. Number eight is Baba Fett. Or is it Boba Fett? Baba, Boba. Still scary. Uh, from Star Wars again. And number seven is Kylo Ren. Star Wars. Star Wars is racking up a lot here on this list. Number five is Penhead from Hellraiser. Number four is, no, number five, again, there was a tie between Penhead and Agent Smith from The Matrix. Yeah. Number four is my guy, Pennywise. I thought Pennywise would be number one, but it's not. Pennywise is number four from It, the movie Number three is Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Number two is Darth Vader, again, from Star Wars. And number one, do we need a drum roll for this? I think so. Number one is Palpatine from Star Wars. Again, Star Wars. Let's see how many times is Star Wars. One, two, three, four. Four. Four Star Wars villains are on the top 10 list of the most scariest, dangerous movie villains, according to CasinoTop3.com website. Now, um, Palpatine, big, huge kill count. Palpatine killed 874 creatures, people, characters. So I guess he does, you know, deserve the rank as the number one most dangerous movie villain. So uh, congratulations, Palpatine. You you rock. Yeah. It's kind of weird, but you managed to pull it off there. So, okay, let's talk about our guest here. We've got some guests in there. They're they're on good list. Should say guests... I should say they're on the list of very talented uh, people here, starting with uh, Chechi. And Chechi is one of the contestants on The Voice, NBC's The Voice, season 24. She is on team uh, Gwen Stefani. And so she will be here chatting with us about her journey to get to the stages of The Voice. If you will remember during the blind auditions, she's the one that hit those mini Ripperton octaves when she sang Loving You. It was incredible. Uh, our next guest is a, if you're a sports fan, especially boxing, you know him, Andre Ward. He is uh, formerly a 
light heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He was a gold medalist. And he walked away at the top of his boxing game. He just walked away from it. So he will be joining us to talk about his new book titled Killing the Image. That's a new autobiography book that he has from Andre Ward. And our third guest is Nick Cabarelli. And he is the host. He is the executive producer of a new eight-part series currently streaming on Paramount Plus, and the title of the series is De La Calle, and it traces the significance and the impact of Latin music on different cultures and other genres of music around the world. So again, Nick will be joining us to talk about De La Calle, which is currently streaming right now, eight-part series on Paramount Plus. So that is is our lineup of guests, and we have to take a quick break. And when we return, we will have our first guest. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone will be right back after this. Okay, before we get to our first guest, I want to share with you a really quick audition notice here. Okay, for all of you out there who are gamers, I mean, really serious gamers, this is your opportunity. This might be for you. There is a production company, L-E-L-L Box Talks Productions, and they are casting gamers for a new online survival reality web series. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about it. It's called uh, Online Survival, and it's sort of like Survivor, but they don't have their people suffering outside in the elements and all. You know how Survivor throws down. But anyway, uh, the contestants will play from the comforts of your own home, right there in your living room or your basement, wherever you are. But you will still have to form alliances and with friendships and create your own social tactics. You know, you still got to lie, deceive, you know, all that good stuff that comes with the territory. Uh, all doing that without being deceived by your fellow competitors so that you can ultimately, of course, win the game. That's the main thing. So can you survive? You think you can survive each rounds and not get eliminated? Are you really that good? Well, if you think you have what it takes to do online survival and you have all of the guts and glory and the bragging rights that you are the top gamer out here, this might be your opportunity. Again, it's called Online Survival, and they are looking for people to apply. You need to apply. The deadline is November 22 this year. Yeah, so you've got about two weeks here. So deadline, again, is November 22, 11 p.m. is, And I don't know if that's Pacific time or what time zone. Just make sure you, you get your stuff in there by 11.21 and you won't miss it. So the email address is competition game cast c-a-s-t at gmail.com now this is what you need to send to the email address you need to send a headshot or a picture of yourself and that's pretty much it just you know how to contact you and again that email address is competition game cast at gmail.com. And that's all written ten together, competitiongamecast at gmail.com. And please submit by November 22, 11 p.m. We're just going to say is Pacific time. But I I'm, I trust you. If you're like me, I hate being late. I always try to do something an hour or two hours early or even a whole day early. So anyway, that's what to do if you think you've got what it takes to be a contestant on online survival, a new online survival reality web series. Okay, if you have any questions, email me, info at filmfestivalradio.com. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with our first guest. This is Drew and Jonathan Scott, The Property Brothers, and you are listening to Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone. Okay, we are back 
to start off the show here with our first guest. Our first guest is Nick Barilli, and he is the host, the creator, and the executive producer of a new series on Paramount Plus that just started a few days ago. It's titled De La Calle, and it... it it's an eight-part docu-series, to be exact, and it explores the evolution of Latin music and its influence on various cultures throughout the world. Now, as I said, Nick is our host, and he and his crew they travel the world just to show everyone the beautiful impact that Latin music has had on so many different music genres, from rap to reggaeton to salsa, just so many, so many throughout the nation, as I said earlier. So uh, Nick is the creator, the executive producer, and he's the host. And so you can see the series, all eight episodes are streaming right now as we speak on Paramount+. Plus. So I had the opportunity to chat with him. Oh, by the way, don't want to leave this out. De La Calle premiered at the 2023 Tribeca Film Festival, and it was a smashing hit. And I'm sure that's when Paramount Plus said, hey, we better, we better scoop that one. So they did. And so now we are all enjoying it. But again, I had the opportunity to chat with Nick a couple of days ago, to be exact. So let's roll it with my chat with Nick Borelli from the new docuseries currently streaming on Paramount Plus title, De La Calle. So let's roll it with Nick right now. Yes, this is Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. So nice to chat with you uh, early this morning. So uh, just let everybody know we are talking about to start talking with award-winning journalist Nick Barilli. Is that the correct pronunciation or is it Barilli? Uh, no, Barilli, you're right. Barilli, okay. And you are the host, executive producer, and co-creator of a new eight-part docuseries on Paramount Plus, and it's titled, is it De La Calle? Uh, de La Calle, uh, means from the street. From the street, okay. As we can see, I'm not very good with Spanish, but I am starting taking lessons starting on the 15th of this month. Yay, finally. I love it, I love it. <laughs> yes, so maybe the next time we do an interview, maybe I can converse with you entirely in Spanish, and so wouldn't that be a great feather for me at least? It, it's it's funny you say that, because one of the, the challenges of this series for me is that it's one of the first bilingual series, and I go back and forth speaking English and Spanish, and Spanish is my first language, but as you can tell, I speak English a lot more, so there was definitely some challenges sometimes when I couldn't think of the words, and the artists helped me out, or whoever helped me out, so language is definitely a, a thing, and I think for me, it's important that, that we try, that we try to learn other languages. We might not be perfect at speaking them, but I think it's the effort and the intentionality of it that's the most important. I totally agree with you, Nick. That's why my classes are starting on the 15th. Well, <laughs> as I said, Paramount Plus, uh, the series starts today, starts streaming. And so tell us all about the series. I'll, I'll just tease by saying it explores the evolution of Latin music and the, how it has influenced cultures around the world. So tell us the rest of the story. Uh, yeah, uh, De La Calle is a, a series that uh, looks at different cultures and different music that were, that were birthed from the street. Uh, whether we're talking about hip hop, we, you know, we go to New York and we examine how Latinos contributed to, to the creation of hip hop. Then we go to Panama, uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba, Spain, Colombia, Argentina and Mexico for season one. Uh, and we explore how, how different cultures uh, and different genres that were birthed from the street are now impacting uh, a global culture and how uh, a lot of uh, neighborhoods that didn't have a, a lot where we're talking financial, you know, resources uh, were able to to create cultures that are now are being heard throughout the world. And so, uh, again, it sounds like that you gentlemen and your crew and everyone traveled the globe, actually. So is there any particular common denominator thread within the music that's affecting and having a great impact on all the all these different countries musically? Yeah, I think culturally, you know, as we travel through through Latin America and Spain, I think we have a lot more in common 
uh, that then we do have differences. Obviously, every country has its own history, but I think what's beautiful and what I felt, you know, going from from city to city was there's a warmthness of, of, of Latin culture that everyone just kind of opened up their arms and embraced us like we were family, even though, you know, I knew some of the artists, but there's a lot of artists that I didn't know. Uh, and they just opened their arms and, and treated us like family and were excited to, to share their stories. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, I think uh, the music and, and all the different places that we went to, it's almost like a gumbo, right? It's like a, a soup that has a lot of different elements. And to see how, you know, each country had their own local cultures, but then were influenced by different places, whether they were influenced by the U.S. or by a neighboring cult, uh, country or, you know, uh, a lot of different places. I think it's beautiful to see how each country made their, their own tasty soup that we're now uh, enjoying through, uh, throughout the world. And what a tasty soup it is throughout the world. So speaking of artists, tell us about some of the uh, the artists and performers that we're going to see. Uh, yeah, every episode, you know, we talk to anywhere between 10 to 18 artists. Uh, some of them are more well-known in the Latin space, like a, a Nikki Jam or uh, Jesse Reyes or, or Fade or Residente from Calle 13 or Fat Joe or Nori. But we also took time, or Gente de Sona, but we also took time uh, to talk to a lot of the pioneers because I think it's important not just to talk to our superstars, but to also talk to the people that that help lay down the bricks to to help this culture. And a lot of them don't have the celebrity or the big hits, but they were important in creating these movements. And I think it's important, you know, that uh, we go beyond the, the songs to really understand the people and the cultures that help birth these movements. I also see in my notes that uh, the series also kind of explores the different political factions and issues that Latin music uh, has influenced throughout the world. Give us a couple of examples that we might see politically speaking. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the context everywhere that we go. For example, uh, you know, understanding the history of, of Panama, for example, and how uh, to build the Panama Canal, uh, a lot of people from Jamaica and from the Caribbean had to come over to help build the canal. And when they brought, they came to Panama, they brought reggae with them, right? So when you bring reggae to a Spanish-speaking country, uh, people like the rhythms, but they wanted to hear uh, the songs in Spanish. So we go from reggae to reggae in Espanol, which is the same reggae songs, but translated to Spanish. And then from that, people started to use the rhythm, but put their own lyrics to their own songs to it. And that really became uh, the bed for what we now call reggaeton, which was, you know, uh, then it moved to Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico took some of the things that were happening in Panama, some of the things that were happening in the U.S. with their own culture and kind of mixed it all in and created, if we're going with the, the soup analogy, you know, created their their own, uh, you know, thing by uh, incorporating all these different elements. But I think as we travel through Latin America, different factors like the building of the Panama Canal, uh, you know, that really affect uh, the culture and affect the people. And and when that happens, you get to hear that uh, through the music. And, you know, in, in Puerto Rico is another example. When uh, reggaeton first started out, the government uh, didn't like it because uh, of the dancing and certain lyrics. So they actually tried to censor it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there's the culture, subcultures and, and, and governments and history, it's all it's all mixed together in the same way that uh, the Bourdain used food uh, to travel the world and talk about culture. You know, we're using music as a conduit to have larger conversations about our society. So as you travel throughout the world, all of these different countries, were there any surprises uh, as you were doing your research that kind of surprised you to find out? Yeah, I think uh, everywhere that I went, uh, you know, there were surprises. I spent many years doing research, but there's nothing like actually going to the cultures and, and hearing it from the pioneers. I mean, a perfect example is uh, a genre like cumbia, for, for example. It started in Colombia, but now is more popular in places like Mexico and Argentina because the youth took the, the original cumbia and they changed it. In Mexico, for example, uh, they slowed down the, the beats per minute of cumbia. So now it's a lot slower. And then there's artists like uh, Santa Fe Clan in Mexico who takes a slowed down cumbia and he raps and sings to it 
uh, but then he plays his accordion over it. So it's like this mixture of cultures that are partly, you know, accordion uh, music from, you know, is influenced Santa Fe in Mexico, but then he's influenced by this culture uh, of uh, that comes from Colombia, but then he's taking rap that is connected to to hip hop and, and to culture in the U.S. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing how uh, as we travel, we see how things are influenced not only locally, but uh, in, in, from different places as well. That is amazing. I find it so cool as, as to how an accordion can just, you know, you think of an accordion, oh, that's kind of corny. No, no, no. When it gets with different elements and other sounds of music, accordion music is just beautiful, just fabulous. Mm -hmm. really yeah, does. I think that's the, the beauty of, of what we saw is that in a lot of genres, uh, you know, some of it is invented and some of it is remixed. So when you remix something, you're taking elements from from different cultures and bringing them all together. And I think uh, that's a, a beautiful representation of, of youth culture that takes some elements from the past and then creates some elements from from their their own experience and, and creates something new with a, a combination of those things. Well, I think that it is long needed. And uh, again, it just explores and just shows, as you mentioned earlier, just how connected we all really are, especially when it comes to music and dance and such as well. So, what? Yeah, it's. It... Oh, go no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I think the power of music to unite us, you know, I, I, I treat music like I treat food. Like, I don't know how, uh, how I survive every day. You know, the first thing I do, I actually don't drink coffee. So the first thing I do is play music. So it's uh, to me, music <laughs> is essential to life. Uh, and I think when we're able to find that connection, uh, you know, we're able to feel a little closer as human beings. We might be from different cultures, but we can relate to movement or melody or, you know, a drum pattern or whatever it is that, that people are uh, drawn to. I think that's a good uh, a good tip for people who are trying to break some of the caffeine addiction. Play some music instead of that third or fourth cup of coffee there. That's great. <laughs> that's great, Nick. So once again, uh, pronounce it for me again. De La Calle, is that it? De La Calle, yep, De you La, got it. Okay, De La Calle is premiering Paramount Plus today, November 7th. And is there a particular website that accompanies the series or what? Uh, there isn't a website that accompanies the series, but for anyone who doesn't have uh, Paramount Plus, uh, you can use the promo code De La Calle to get a, a free one-month trial to, to check it out and hopefully watch De La Calle. You can also find me uh, on uh, on the social media uh, at Nicholas R. Barilli, uh, and you can stay informed that way of, of the, the different things that are going on with De La Calle. Oh, great. Thank you, Paramount Plus, for that um you know, freebie there to try it out. So, nope. okay. Nick, we, we want everyone to be able to watch it. Absolutely. Well, Nick, thank you so much. And congratulations on the success of uh, finishing this eight-part series. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, take Have care. A good one. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, we are back. And... Just a reminder, you're listening to Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone, and it is time for our next guest. Well, our next guest is a very pretty, very talented young lady. We saw her several times now. She is one of the contestants on season 24 of The Voice, and she is on Team Gwen Stefani. We're talking about Chi-Chi, and she is a first-generation Nigerian we're talking about Chi-Chi, and she's a first-generation Nigerian-American, and her full name uh, in her country, in her language, means God's Wish in the Igbo language. Now, she has been singing since she was 13. She started off wanting to go to college to study medicine, possibly become a doctor, but she had that singing talent there, and so she decided to pursue a career in professional music here. And so she has um, opened up for people such as Brian McKnight. Um, she's, who else is it? Oh, Lizzo. She performed with Lizzo at the Grammys, uh, doing some background vocals for Lizzo. She's also uh, performed in Kanye West uh, Sunday Service Choir. Remember when he had all that? So she has 
been with some of the top people. So now she is pursuing a solo career on her own. And she really got the attention of the world during the uh, blind auditions that that octave Minnie Riperton, loving you. Remember that clip? Oh, goodness. If you can hit those Minnie Riperton octave notes like Chi-Chi does, you've got some talent. But she did it, and now she is in the knockout rounds of The Voice. And so I had the opportunity to chat with her. Love talking to the performers from The Voice. So let's roll it with my recent interview with Chi-Chi from... The Voice, season 24. Let's take a listen. Hi, Miss Chechi. How are you this afternoon? I'm feeling fabulous. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I am. I have been anxious. We've been trying to connect this for, what, two weeks almost. But we finally have you. I mean, you obviously have been very busy. But uh, let's just jump right in here. We, of course, have been seeing you in action on The Voice, season 24. Uh, j- just amazing. Your talent is, I'm just, oh, I don't even know what to say. So in the, in the very beginning, all the judges' chairs turned around. What was that like for you? My goodness. Oh, um, it was such a thrill, like to have all of the judges turn for me. It's something that I was rooting for and talking myself into. Like, I gotta have four chairs. Uh, but it was also a bit overwhelming <laughs> just to finish the song with legends watching me, you know. But more than anything, it was a thrill. I was really happy. Oh, I can only imagine. When that happened for you, uh, I know some contestants that we've talked to, even when the first chair turns, they sometimes have said that their mind just kind of goes blank for like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so with in your case, that means that you had four judges. Did your mind go blank for about 20 seconds or what? My goodness. I don't even know how long. I just, I remember not being able to see. Like I was looking around, <laughs> but I feel like I couldn't see anything. <laughs> goodness. I think you have a good excuse. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> a really good excuse. So, okay, uh, I'm going to be showing some of my age here. Uh, I remember Minnie Ripperton growing up. My mom was a huge fan of hers, and that's when I first heard about her. And you sang uh, one of Minnie's classic songs, Loving You. What made you decide on that particular song? Well, I have been singing this song, like, forever. Like, I've sung this song a million times. It makes me really happy, and I have a lot of fun with it. So I just mm-hmm. thought it would be the best song for me to perform so I can have a good time and also make sure that people feel it. What is the secret, other than having unusual, phenomenal talent? I know that's the first step. But <laughs> hitting that, that that kind of an octave and the whistle effect that you are so have mastered, is, is there a, a, a tip or a secret as if like, like I can do this just by you telling me? But anyway, no. <laughs> what what is the secret to that or, or just natural or what? I was really blessed. I just discovered I had it very young, but I didn't use it because I didn't know how cold it was. But I do believe that practice makes perfect, like with many things. Uh, and there are techniques that you can do to stretch your vocal range. Um, just as simple as vocal exercises and a lot of concentration on your breathing and like proper breathing techniques makes a huge difference in execution with whistle notes and any kind of note, honestly. Now, how old were you the first time that you heard uh, Loving You? Um, it had to be like around like 11 through 13. And so did you immediately say, this is, I love this song, or did you, did you take a while to, to learn it and master it or what? I really love this song, but I heard it as a challenge first. I was like, oh, let me see if I could do it. You know, and, and I kind of, I was testing it out very quietly, you know, mm-hmm. like to myself, just for me, you know. And then I kind of went on with my business. And then I would revisit the song just 
singing it because I liked it. It, it took a very long time that I discovered that it, it had stock value. It definitely does, because I think a lot of uh, people of this generation, uh, now obviously they're young and they may not know uh, who Minnie Riperton is and be familiar with her music. So if people who are listening go to YouTube and play some Minnie Riperton, that's Maya Rudolph's mom for people who don't still don't know. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got to throw that in. But I understand that you have uh, you 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 were the opening act for Brian McKnight at one time. What was that like? That was pretty awesome, actually. Um, Brian is so talented, like so insanely talented, a talented vocalist, writer, and musician. So, um, just to be on the same stage, I felt very blessed, you know, to share that stage with him and to sing to his audience. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he has, uh, he's another one that's been out here consistently for a while as a music performer. And also, yeah. you've, uh, now you sang also, I understand, with Lizzo, uh, at the Grammys. Yeah. So what was that like? Tell us about that. Man, that was pretty awesome. Um, there were several of us that sung with Lizzo and, um, we rehearsed a lot. We learned some choreography. She would come in and talk to us and, you know, she was just laser focused, but she was really nice and friendly and silly too. So it was, it felt like a lot more fun than work. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, unfortunately, as we know right now, Lizzo's kind of having a little bit of a, a hard time on some things PR wise, but I'm sure yeah. she'll get through it as well. Yeah. By the grace of God, it will pass. And oh, yeah. The best solution will For take sure. place. Absolutely. So, so far, uh, what's it, what's your, your coach? What has she been telling you that you were going to, is going to stick with you for the rest of your music performance career? Oh, um, I'll say two things. Um, first, she emphasized, um, making sure that I was very, emotional to make sure that I'm not keeping anything in and that I'm always putting it out there for people to feel it because that matters the most and it's not even like I didn't know that and I consider myself such an emotional singer but you know sometimes you have periods where you may be going through a rough patch and maybe you stiffen up a bit and I, I thought I still had a good balance and she just called it out so quickly. <laughs> so I was just amazed by her sharpness and just, um, you know, she made it known to me just how important it was that even just a little bit of holding back is not the best option. Um, second, um, I will say she said that these moments come and go. So you really have to be in the moment and try your best not to make it a big deal, even though it's a big deal. It is a big deal. I would say the voice is a huge big deal. It, it totally It's a is. huge, <laughs> right? And I'm looking at her like, how? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> this is my first time on national television, but um, I do get what she's saying, you know, uh, and I'm trying to word it best on how she said it, but the message was, to be present and do your best to really have fun because once this moment is gone, it's gone. And it's really been a blessing to just be a part of this season and meeting all the people and especially getting exposure that I've wanted my whole life. So I'm grateful. Well, you've got it now, young lady, that exposure. You cannot put the genie back in the bottle as far as that exposure. <laughs> you cannot. Oh, funny. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. Well, now I understand that also you are a first generation Nigerian American, uh, here yeah. in this country. So have, uh, your family members back over in Nigeria, have they seen your show or you're on the, on the voice or what? Yeah. My cousins have reached out to me and, uh, I think like two, two or three of them have reposted, but, uh, I'm not sure if everyone knows yet, to be completely honest. I have so many family members. Oh, uh, but I, 
but I know some people have seen it and they were really proud. It's, it's such a blessing to be able to do something that almost anybody would know what it is, you know, <laughs> like I've been blessed to do like really big opportunities, but everybody knows what the voice is. You can't really deny that. So that was really cool for me. Now you mentioned earlier that this is your first time on national television. Is this your first time trying out and auditioning for The Voice or did you try previous times? I did try out before and I just thought it wasn't for me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of moved on. So I'm so glad that this season happened for me because uh, in the industry, you just... You have to just keep going and you try so many things. And sometimes you end up deciding, oh, maybe this is not the route for me. Not even out of bitterness, but just out of moving forward. So I'm, I'm just so grateful that it worked out this year, really. And so what was it that caused you to come back and try it a second time? The lady that I spoke to... She just talked it up so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. She talked it up so good. And everyone from the voice team is just amazing. And they really care about the artist. That was what grabbed my attention. I didn't want to get on a show and my artistry be downplayed or me not be viewed as an artist, but as a singer. I think that's, um, that was one of my worst nightmares. And. Just hearing about the opportunity and the flow of how the production would go um, had really excited me. And then by that time, you know, I had seen just some other people have success on the show. So I was I was more open to it again. Well, I have two last questions here. So now that you you mentioned earlier that you, you know, the, the fame and being famous and all of that, have you experienced people asking for your autograph and recognizing you when you're out and about in public? Has, has that started yet for you? It has started. It doesn't <laughs> seem real. <laughs> it's like, it's just crazy. Um, when I was in Detroit, um, I think it happened there the most. Um, I did the national anthem for the opening night, Detroit versus Chicago. and. Um, I just got a lot of, wow, are you the girl for the voice? And a lot of compliments on the national anthem. And when I got home, my sister, she's so cute. She asked me to sign her t-shirt hmm. and we just laughed so hard because she said, I remember you said, uh, she said, I remember you practice this all the time saying one day I'm going to need it. And I just, it just, I was froze in place remembering me saying that. Charlotte. It's very surreal. That's so sweet. That is so sweet. And finally, our listeners love to hear the backstories of, uh, because we've had so many people, contestants on, I should say, from The Voice ever since season one of the show. And we uh -huh. just, we got listeners that love this, this question. So in your case, how did you keep it a secret from family and friends that you had made it through the first rounds of the audition process? Oh my goodness. First, I have to say that it was awful. This Ooh. is the worst secret ever <laughs> trying to keep. Because I'm such an honest person. I hate keeping things from people, especially my family. Um, what I did is I just danced around it and talked about everything else. Um, coincidentally, the Lizzo opportunity happened at the top of the year. And the year before, I kept saying, I, I told people, I'm going to be on television. I didn't know how. And I thought it was the Lizzo opportunity. And so I feel like everyone kind of, you know, held on to that too. <laughs> and then I was just like, yeah, more to come, more to come, everybody. I'm grinding, I'm grinding. And you know, that was enough to just keep everyone steady. Um, when I got closer to, I think my brother started having suspicions. <laughs> so I just kind of tried to dodge him a little bit. Um, 
And some of my friends, you know, were asking questions, but um, I also was getting really focused and people know me for kind of zoning out when I want to either uh, level up or add something to my brand or I'm working on a project. I get laser focused. So um, I definitely took advantage of that. <laughs> That's so funny. Those stories are, like I said, our viewers, our listeners, I should say, just love to hear those backstories. So now we've got a new one to add on the list. So did did all everybody know that you did go to audition for The Voice or you just didn't tell anybody at all? I didn't tell anybody anything. I was quite secretive about it. Oh, that's hard. That's difficult. Yeah. Well, now your secret is out in the open here <laughs> quite well. And so uh, anyway, the weekend is coming up. Can you share with us what are your plans for this weekend? Is there a lot of rehearsals? Are you going to take it easy or what, what can you tell us? Definitely lots of rehearsing and rest. Okay. Rehearsal rest because you got to get that rest for your voice to just sound crystal clear and, you know, for everything to function properly. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm going to start it off by letting you get your rest. And thank <laughs> you so very much for chatting with me. As I said earlier, we had been trying to get this scheduled. For your schedule was busy. Mine was busy. But I just had to talk to you when I saw about you know the whole Minnie Ruperton loving you. I said, oh, i got to have her on my show. And so we have you on the show. So thank you so much for the conversation. And we will look forward to seeing you on your next performance on The Voice. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, absolutely. And we'll be cheering you on, okay? Lovely. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you so much, Chi-Chi. Make sure you tune in to The Voice on NBC, of course, next week. And we will definitely be cheering this young lady on because she was on our show. So we have to cheer her on. But she's so de- but she's so deserving because she's got that talent here. So to further speak of talent, that brings me to our next guest. Our next guest is former undefeated light heavyweight boxing champion, Andre Ward. And so for those of you out there, especially listeners here in Vegas, boxing is king here in Vegas. You are more than familiar with Andre Ward. He had it all, so to speak. He was uh, an Olympic gold medalist in boxing. And as I said, he was, uh, he left the game of boxing undefeated. Yeah, he was at the top of his game and he decided to walk away. Why did he do that? Well, we're going to find out. He has a brand new book that is about to be released in a couple of days here. The title of it is Killing the Image, and it is an autobiography about his life up to this point. And it also explains a lot as to why he decided to walk away from uh, being the light heavyweight champion of the world there. It's very motivating. It's a very inspiring book for people, even if you're not into, you know, sports and boxing, or if you're not famous at all, it's a very inspiring book. So I talked to him yesterday morning, actually very early, like 6.30 a.m. our time, and he had a lot to say. So let's bring on uh, Andre Ward. I should say pastor, minister, Andre Ward. He will get into more details about what his life is like now, as uh, he is no longer in the sport of boxing, but he is still doing a lot of very inspiring work for the people, the communities, and the world, actually. So again, the book is titled Killing the Image, and it's available at all the wonderful places that you get and purchase books. So let's roll it with Andre Ward. Take a listen. So I want to tell everybody that we are about to speak to Andre Ward. Uh, the new book, he has his new memoir called Killing the Image. 
And for sports fans, they many already know you, but for non-sports fans who are listening, you are the undefeated, former, I should say, undefeated light heavyweight boxing champion of the world and an Olympic gold medalist. But you have a new book out titled Killing the Image Again. I mean, Andre, you were at the top of your, your boxing game and you just walked away. Tell us in, in summary what happened. Well, I think... You know, me walking away September 21st, 2017, uh, was sort of a long time coming. Um, you know, being a professional athlete, uh, and specifically a fighter, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices that go into that. You know, you really don't have an off period. Even when I'm done with a fight and I go on vacation with my family and I'm living the home life, my mind is always churning and thinking about, okay, I can't eat this. Okay, man, I just got a call. They're talking about my next fight. There's a lot of emotional and mental and physical sacrifice that goes into it. And I have been doing this sport since I was nine years old. So, and I endured injuries and just, you know, just great moments. But then, also, the other side of the game, the physical ta- taxing that it takes on your body, you just get to a point where you want your freedom back. You just want to live a normal life. I don't want to have the burden of another fight um, coming down the pipe. I don't want to have to leave my family again for three months to get ready for a fight. And here's the other thing. I've always been a student of the game, even as a young man, and I would see how fighters would come from nothing, have this arc. And then they would crash and burn. And then people would try to push them out of the sport because they stayed around too long. I just didn't want to be another. Those are some very, very valid reasons, Andre. I I commend you. (laughs) I totally commend you on that. Uh, You write that boxing was never the biggest fight of your life. Talk about that statement. Well, you know, I have a great family, my mother's side and my father's side. But as you know, Every family is not perfect, and you're born into the family that you're born into. And for me, I was born into a family who had alcoholism generationally. You know, a drug addiction was a thing generationally, um, and even some mental health stuff. And you just get thrust into a situation. Everybody's trying to figure life out, and I mean your parents, and but yet I'm getting older. I'm recognizing thing that things now. I'm going through adolescence. My body's changing. My mind's changing. I'm getting older. I got opinions now. And I got away from what I was taught, which is the word of God. My foundation was my relationship with God. And I started to get resentful that mom was messing up. I started to get resentful that dad wasn't there all the time. And I found myself doing the very things that I was resenting, which is abusing alcohol. Uh, abusing drugs, you know, running away from the gift or one of the gifts that God had given me, which was boxing. And I really was on my way of crashing and burning. And I'm grateful for a few good people in my life. You know, God kept tugging on me through the voices of my mother when she got herself clean and sober, uh, my old pastor at that time, and just, you know, Verge himself, my godfather and trainer who, you know, would always be honest with me and say, son, this ain't you. You know, God's got his hand on you. You're not going to enjoy life doing what you're doing. You need to get back on track. So uh, I'm just grateful for the ones that continue to pursue me, continue to come and get me. But I definitely fell into a pit for many years of my life. I also want to note that you and your beautiful wife, Tiffany, uh, you have five children and you are also uh, a pastor, licensed minister, youth pastor at your church, the Well Christian Community in Livermore, California. Now, when you decided that you were going to walk away from boxing, did you know that you wanted to go into ministry immediately or did that later just kind of come about gradually? Well, I knew the ministry thing was I was already in ministry. I wasn't a minister while I was active. I was, you know, serving in my church, though, in many capacities. I had gone to churches to preach and different things like that. But, you know, I just didn't do a lot of broadcasting about it. But I always knew that, man, this is really my true calling. Like the boxing is something I'm doing and that's going to be for a season and time. And I'm also, a, you know, a businessman. I love doing business in the marketplace. But this is really what I'm put on this earth to do. And I think, you know, I have a great pastor, Napoleon Kaufman, uh, who, 
he's real big on timing. Like, hey, God's going to do it, but just wait for the right time. So when I retired, you know, several years after that, right around 2020, um, is when I, me and my wife started to make, you know, go through the process to become ministers and youth pastors at our church. Um, and it's just been so fulfilling and it's been, uh, just such a, just such a wonderful process. And I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing on this earth. Final question here. Uh, you and former heavyweight champion, boxing champion George Foreman have a lot of similarities. Both of you are Olympic gold medalists in boxing, pastors, ministers, and successful businessmen. Have you two ever met or what? Um, me and George have met before. I'm really good friends with his third son. I call him G3, George III. <laughs> and, and me and George Foreman, you know, we text from time to time. And I have a lot of admiration from George. And I actually talk about this in my book, um, in the very first chapter where it talks about a champion is born. You know, watching George Foreman come back off of, I think, a 10-year hiatus yeah. and, and shock world and become the oldest heavyweight champion when he knocked out Michael Moore. I talk about that scene in the book where me and my father, we had one of those old school big screen televisions that sat on the floor and how captivated I was by watching George do what he did and listening to the commentators. And then I started to drift and think, what could I do this? Could I, could I be in an arena like that one day and have people cheering for me? So I give George a lot of credit for the example he's been, but he's responsible for planting that seed in me. Uh, to become a, the champion that I became. That's wonderful to hear that you and your family, his family are close there. Uh, lastly here, who are some of the names that you like today in, in, in the heavyweight and the lightweight division of boxing? Man, I like, I like the young generation, you know, um, you know, Shakur Stevenson is, is probably my favorite fighter. Um, you got Keyshawn Davis, um, you got Jared Anderson, um, Jerron Ennis from Philadelphia, um, Tank Davis. I mean, the list goes on and on. Ryan Garcia is a great fighter. I get excited watching the young generation because it's almost like I'm living through them. It's like, man, I remember when I was at that stage in my career. Man, I remember when, you know, I was that age and what I used to feel at that point in my career. And I, I love what the young guys are doing, man. I try to always support either directly or indirectly in some fashion or form. They Boxing is in good hands. So the young generation coming up, keep an eye out on them, all different weight classes. Um, they got a lot to bring to the table. Boxing is in good hands. That's a great comment. I'm sure these young boxers, when they hear this, are going to be happy to hear their names called by you here. So again, Andre Ward, the book, because it's called uh, the title, I should say, the title of the book is Killing the Image. Quick website for you, Instagram handle. Where can we, how can we reach you? Yeah, you can reach me on uh, Twitter at Andre Ward on my, my Instagram, Andre S.O.G. Ward. I'm very heavy on Instagram. A lot of photos, a lot of videos. You click that link in the bio um, and you can pre-order the book. The book is out November 14th. Or you can just go to Amazon where or anywhere where books are sold and get this book. Man, I put my heart and soul into it. Um, and I hope not just to inspire, but to encourage people to get up and go do something, go overcome something, go face something. And if I can do it, you can do it as well. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much, Andre. And uh, we will follow your instructions and go get that book. So have a great rest of the weekend. Right. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you so much, Andre. And okay, having uh, ended that one, it's time for us to end the show here. We are running out of time here. Thank you to all of our guests for making an appearance in the show, taking the time. These are very busy people, and they take the time to talk to us so that you can hear about what's going on in their world. And we appreciate all of you listeners out there that take the time to listen to us as well. So thank you so much. Remember, you can always email us, info at filmfestivalradio.com. So that's going to do it for this edition of the show, and we'll see you guys next Saturday. So take care of yourself. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next Saturday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com. Mm-hmm.